We are so pleased to announce a beautiful new addition to our family. So begins a typical birth announcement that leads to a date, a name, and maybe even the place where the child was born. In sending the announcement, the parent uses special stationery or a uniquely designed template because the parent is pleased, proud, and anxious to let friends and family know the good news. What would a birth announcement for Jesus sound like? John's Gospel provides us with one. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of a Father's only Son. What would a birth certificate for Jesus look like if birth certificates were a thing in His day? What information would be printed on it? This Advent, the pastors will share commentary on this imagined certificate in our sermon series, Jesus' Birth Certificate. Join us as we consider the good news announcement of Jesus' birth and explore the significance of one who was born among us but lived as God with us. Let us pray. Holy God, we ask, O Lord, that through the Word made flesh, you be made known to us in Christ Jesus, whose birth we celebrate. Amen. For the Sundays of Advent, we preaching pastors have been filling in the blanks of an imaginary birth certificate for Jesus. Now, the way we fill out the birth certificate is somewhat different from the way that Joseph would have filled it out, I think. With place of birth, we would write in the same thing, Bethlehem. Joseph would have been surprised to write Bethlehem because he and Mary expected to have the child in their hometown in Nazareth. But Rome's demand for a census displaced them to Bethlehem. With date of birth, Joseph would not have written in December 25, 4 BC. He would have used either a lunar calendar or a solar calendar, both which were used at the time, which would have looked very different from what we write. And there's this difference. He would have gotten it right because he was there. Ours is a best guess estimate based on hindsight scholarship. With name of child, we might have filled in the blank the way that Joseph did, but we would have done so for different reasons. He might have written in Jesus, son of Joseph, because he was adopting his fiancee's child. We wrote the same, but we did so to honor Joseph for having been faithful in doing what he did, adopting his fiancee's child even though the baby was not his own. Today we get to name of the father. Joseph would write in his own name, I think, but we're going to fill in the blank in a way that reflects the church's affirmation of faith concerning this child. Listen for that affirmation in this reading from the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory the glory of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is the only Son, himself God, who is close to the Father's heart, who has made him known. The word of the Lord. Jesus comes of the Holy Spirit, the Gospels tell us. 
John's gospel gets more specific in telling us that Jesus is God's only son and that in him God is made known to us. So, listening to the theological tradition of the church, we have written in our imagined birth certificate, God, for name of Father. But that doesn't say much, does it? I mean, God is more a reference than a name, don't you think? I mean, as Christians, we can wink at each other and say, well, we know But when you look on the way that Christians call on God these days, how God is even made to seem hateful to certain people, parochial to certain nations, and indulgent of prejudices and power grabs, we might want to stop winking long enough so that we can see what actually is revealed. We need some definition when we say God. Maybe we could have written in one of the names for God that we find in the Hebrew Bible, For instance, we could have written in the collection of syllables that can only be heard as breath. Yahweh, Yahweh. Because we live only because God breathes in us and through us. Now that name, those consonants were later injected with vowels so something could be said when we talk Yahweh. And that name is about as Jewish as a name can get. To write Yahweh in that blank would be to say, the God of the Jews. Or maybe we could have written in the name that became popular in the exile, Elohim, a name which points more to the God as the God of all nations, of all people. To write Elohim is to write the God of the nations. But what does God expect of all the nations? Or we could have written Adonai, which is not really a name. Adonai means my Lord and was used by those who believed that God, being a mystery, could not have a name spoken by human lips, but is a God to be obeyed. To write Adonai is to write the unnamed God. In all those names, you can hear how hesitant Jewish biblical tradition was in saying too much about God. Yahweh, a name of consonants without vowels, a name exclusive to the Jews. Elohim, a name of God for all nations, a name exclusive of all other gods. And Adonai, a title that is not a name because no name will do. This hesitancy comes from a well-developed wisdom about human nature. Humanity has this terrible habit of trying to define God in order to control God. We want to name God because we want to claim that name as as an endorsement for our own biases and views. And so God needs to be in some sense unnameable to debunk any illusion that God can be the sole property of any empire or kingdom or country or state, any king or governor or president or politician or pope or pastor or any particular party or cause, or of any theology or ideology. And yet we need to write something in the blank. So we write God because something needs to be said. Something needs to be said for us to be able to talk to each other. Barry Taylor, the road manager for the band ACDC, that's my theologian for the day, he puts it this way. He said, God is the name of the blanket that we throw over mystery to give it shape. God is the name of the blanket we throw over mystery to give it shape. I like that. 
God will be forever beyond our ability to understand, define, or control. But if God is going to be anyway a holy, real, and transformative presence in our lives, then God needs some kind of defining shape. Some kind of blanket needs to be thrown over the mystery so we can know something of what it means to be children of God. As I said before, in saying God is the Father, something more needs to be said. We need to see more of a blanket because simply saying God is a grits name. Grits has little taste unless something else is added to it. Something else must be added to what is meant by God or we end up adding whatever we want for God to mean. So God can mean the merciless judge if the blanket is just a quilt of God's demands. Or God can mean absent creator if the blanket is only the idea that something had to make the universe and keep it running. Or God can mean me if God is defined in my image and then I can pick and choose passages to line up with what I already think and want. Narcissists love that kind of blanket. What we have written as name of the Father will work, though, as long as we remember that it's on the same birth certificate as name of son, because John says that Jesus, as God's only son, makes God known. The gospel of John presents Jesus as God's spitting image. Jesus is the blanket that the gospels use to throw on the mystery that is God, to give God shape. And for John's gospel, the mystery that is God takes shape the very moment that Jesus is born. We learn something important about God simply by doing what St. Francis of Assisi did and pay attention to the circumstances of his birth. St. Francis visited the Holy Land and he was inspired when he saw the Bethlehem cave in which many believed that Jesus was born. And he was in awe of the humble, simple, and impoverished conditions in which Jesus would have been placed as a baby. And God gained shape for him. He saw a God who did not find any part of the human condition as being beneath human dignity. He saw a God who fully embraced the poverty of the human condition. He saw in a needy child the God who came to share in the needs of the world. St. Francis came back home to Italy eager to share that vision with a country and with countrymen that he thought believed in Jesus, but who seemed to really worship rampant greed and materialism. He saw Italian princes who only impoverished the people more and felt vindicated doing so by a Jesus portrayed as a figure gilded in gold. So Francis got the Pope's attention to stage a scene, the very first nativity scene in history. He staged it inside a cave in Garachel. He set up a manger and filled it with hay, brought in a live ox and a donkey, and then invited the townspeople and his fellow friars to come see the humble and impoverished staging of Jesus' birth. St. Francis died the very next year but his tradition of humble and impoverished nativity scenes has remained to this day, even if it's usually a barn that is depicted instead of a cave. For instance, 
Consider a modern-day example of carrying on St. Francis tradition told to me by my friend, Joy Sylvester Johnson. Joy lived at the rescue mission when her father was the director, and then later, when she was the director, lived there again. And she carried on a tradition that her father began. Just like other churches in Roanoke those years, the mission would put its own nativity scene outside the mission. And there was placed a structure evoking a barn, a manger with hay, live animals. And of course, there was Mary, Joseph, shepherds and angels and magi, all portrayed by children of families sheltered at the mission. The subtle point being made is that God finds a home with these displaced families. We make the same point in our Christmas Eve services, but in a different way. We do not stage a nativity scene, but we do take up a manger offering for the Family Promise Program that helps provide a safe and hospitable place for families in housing crisis. We're simply trying to follow God who finds a home with us all, and that includes finding a bed in a manger and a home with families who do not have a home. Now, after tomorrow, we'll need to keep paying attention to how the one born in a cave then lives. The Gospels will go on to tell the story of Jesus' life, and the blanket will spread, giving more and more shade. We'll need to pay attention to what Jesus does. We need to listen to what he says. We'll need to notice how he suffers and dies. We'll need to notice the company that Jesus keeps, the people he helps, and those who are drawn to him, and those who are repelled by him. We'll need to pay attention to who and how he forgives, how he treats those who speak too confidently of God, and how he treats those who are convinced that they are abandoned by God because they are sinners. How he treats the afflicted and remains in conversation with those whose faith is unsure and searching. We'll need to watch how Jesus embraces the law of love and how he lives and dies for the sake of reconciliation. Let's watch how this blanket covering the mystery that is God takes enough shape to let us know that God despises degradation for the sake of power and wealth and values human dignity and the selfless care of God's creation. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.